I think today's episode would be great for anybody who wants to, you know, hear a little bit about the balance between supplementation, medications, um, you know, common health conditions that can cause, um, you know, symptoms that need to be treated at their you know, sort of root cause. I know that phrase has gotten you know, different associations with it, but kind of looking upstream, uh, like we talked about, you know, maybe the thyroid issue is causing the gut issue and the gut issue is causing some brain fog, well, things like that that are related that um, you really have to dig deep into um, to find out you know, what's causing it and then to live the life that you want to. All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the NeuroFlex podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. Just want to let you guys know that we are going to have a booth at Canadelic, the upcoming cannabis and psychedelic conference that's taking place in Miami, Florida, uh, from February 2nd through February 4th. There's going to be uh, some amazing keynote speakers, uh, Paul Stamets, uh, James Silva, uh, a lot of really cool guys talking about cannabis, psychedelics, and a lot of other wellness-related topics. So hope to see you guys, some of you guys there who are in the South Florida area. Uh, again, that's taking place February 2nd through 4th. We'll have a booth, be doing some brain mapping and some brain education stuff there. On to today's show, uh, we have a very special guest, James O'Hara, who is a nurse practitioner with a passion for evidence-based individualized medicine. He utilizes an integrative approach which combines lifestyle interventions, supplementation, and medications when indicated to empower patients to feel better and live longer, healthier lives. So James, welcome to the show. Yeah, Toby, thanks so much for having me on. Really excited to be here. Of course. Yeah, so I'm curious to hear what, what originally drew you into medicine. Yeah, so my background in medicine kind of starts on the patient side of things. So growing up, I broke a lot of bones. So as a result of that, I was in a lot of ERs and doctor's offices. And one in particular, uh, one fracture that I had, I ended up developing a complication uh, called compartment syndrome. And for the listener, that is where essentially you have a very large amount of swelling and it sort of closes off a, a muscle compartment and compresses the arteries so you don't get blood flow to the you know, hand, for example, in my case. So you have the potential for some nerve damage there, uh, tissue necrosis, things like that. Uh, the hallmark sign is excruciating pain. So that was a pretty profound experience for me. Fortunately, I had a, a very good mother, one that got me to the hospital, uh, and then also a very good surgeon that performed the emergency surgery um, called a fasciotomy, where essentially they um, not just cut into the skin, but cut through the fascia, which is kind of like the skin of the muscle. Um, and then that releases the pressure and blood flow is restored. And uh, fortunately, I don't have any sequelae of that, any negative consequences, other than a couple of scars that you know remind me that I was very lucky. Very interesting. I, so, so that was like an acute case of, of compartment syndrome that you had. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. a bit abnormal. It wasn't immediately after the fracture. It actually happened after I had a rod placed in the radius to stabilize that. Um, it was after that surgery that I developed the, the swelling. Typically, it follows the acute trauma, like right after somebody fractures the, the bone, then you see that swelling in the compartment syndrome. Um, right. Yeah, it was a really interesting experience. And, you know, that's part of what steered me into, into nursing, because I was in the hospital and it was really, you know, the nurses that were there a lot of the time. 
um, and really good nursing program in Southern Illinois, where I grew up. I believe it is or was number one in the state for a while as far as the board pass rates. So it was a good fit. And I was like, oh, I can do this. I can help people. And I always like the sciences. Um, and I think that's really what tilted me into uh, medicine. Uh, it actually started off in orthopedics when I started working as an RN um, inpatient in the hospitals, um, naturally with my broken bone experience, although this was more of the um, joint replacement and and that sort of thing that we were doing at the time. And part of what I remember about that is um, the mindset shift that people have when they're going in for a procedure like that, because they're used to this sort of chronic pain, you know, probably had pain for five or 10 years, if not longer. And it gets worse, right? Each year, it's kind of a degenerative process. Um, but then they come in and, you know, they know that they're going to have the surgery done. And, you know, they wake up and you know, there was always pain after the surgery. Um, but what patients told me was it was a different pain. And, and instead of knowing that it was going to get worse and worse and worse, they knew each day things were going to get a little bit better. And uh, I think it was that kind of hope um, that I always try to capture, even in my patient interactions today, because people have to have something to kind of, you know, attached to and to look forward to you know, finding, you know, hope or meaning, you know, whatever that means to an individual person in order to really move forward and kind of have that shift towards a really positive outlook, I think has a profound impact on health. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I was really curious that with the, the compartment syndrome, because I actually had back in, in high school, I had like a chronic case of that. So I, thought that, you know, I was told that I had like shin splints and did all the different exercises and iced and everything and it just didn't get better. Uh, and then I did like that, uh, whatever it was, that pressure test where they stick, mm -hmm. I don't know if you had like the big, uh, big needles kind of testing, uh, I guess the pressure, um, of the, the fascia against the muscle, I think. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was saying I also had a fasciotomy. It was, you know, more of chronic case, whereas yours, as it sounds, you know, it's rather, rather acute, but not too often that you uh, talk to other people who've had that similar experience. So, yeah. I, yeah, that's I really uh, a coincidence. In, in your case, it was in your um, calf area. It sounds like with the- It was- Bacon and shin, shin uh, excuse me, shin splints. Yeah, sort of like the the, the shin, like uh, I had an incision kind of like lower down, like by the ankle, and then mm -hmm. also one like higher up, uh, sort of closer to the knee um, mm -hmm. on each leg. But yeah, exactly what you're saying, kind of they, they go in, um, slip the fascia, relieves the pressure. And, and I also ended up feeling um, you know, way better, uh, way better afterwards. I didn't have those, those recurring problems. So that's really cool that that was sort of a, uh, you use that experience and that kind of fueled your, your, uh, you know, your career into medicine. And I wanted to, to highlight something or, or kind of explore further something that, that you mentioned just in terms of, you know, the sort of the process or, or the importance of like having hope, you know, as a patient and that sort of leading to, you know, recovery. Can you speak some, some more on just like if someone, you know, has been given like a diagnosis where they feel like, oh, like, you know, it's just there's there's such a slim chance of, of living or they just get to a point where, they don't really feel um, like they're going to recover versus someone who, on the other hand, is more optimistic. Like how, how big of a role do you think that really plays in, in patient's recovery? Yeah, I think it plays a really big role. Um, you, you look at some of the like baseline characteristics that people have, and if they have more positive affect and more optimism, 
um, then they tend to have better outcomes, you know, even going into things like, like a cardiac surgery, for example, people who have like subsequent or even pre-existing depression, that is something that you want to be managing very carefully because that can have a negative impact on their systemic health, which, you know, a lot of people are like, well, how can that be? Because, you know, there's this kind of misconception that the brain and the body are separated. But yeah, I think mental health is a really good example of something where the mindset is really important. And uh, a term that I hear more and more now is people talking about like a sick identity or um, yeah, I guess this is back in like the 90s and early 2000s, whenever there was this shift towards, you know, more acceptance and more diagnoses of things in the mental health field, uh, which I think that was a positive because then there's less stigma associated with it. Uh, people are getting the care that they need for things like, you know, depression or anxiety or other mental health conditions. Um, but then there's kind of this, you know, box that you're put in and it's like, well, you know, you're just depressed and, you know, this is kind of the way you are. And a lot of the focus, if you listen to some of Martin Seligman's work, he talks about the focus was on making miserable people less miserable and not really pushing through to make people live fulfilling lives. So it's like, what is really bringing people meaning? And it's not like everyday pleasures. Like if you go to an amusement park, right? You feel good for a day, but that's not going to make you feel good 365 days a year if you're going to an amusement park once a year. It's really about finding small, meaningful things and then a larger sense of purpose. So whether that's your you know, work that you're doing or whether that's um, a hobby that you have or you know, even something like you know, this podcast, which is kind of both um, where you're giving free to the public you know, education, information, interesting things that you know, people are otherwise probably not going to learn about. Right, right. And yeah, that so so Martin Seligman, I believe he he kind of founded the field of like positive psychology, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and that it's it's such an interesting thing, like just my background is in psychology and psychology focuses so much on like abnormal processes, what happens in the brain or, you know, what what goes on when someone's mental health goes awry or, you know, and, and how to correct that rather than like the focus on like, okay, how about you know, wellness optimization, uh, you know, improving the health of the brain. So it's, it was a real paradigm shift. I remember just in, in learning about his work. So I, I'm really happy that you brought that up. And it definitely seems so important just in our, in our current day and age, like with, with like, it seems like people, I mean, uh, you know, obviously there, there are things that are still deadly out there um, that, that do like, you know, in the Western world, you know, kill people, but it seems like for the, the, uh, the vast majority of people, it's like chronic diseases that they're dealing with rather than, you know, necessarily like really acute things that, uh, may have plagued, uh, you know, society, you know, decades ago. So it's, it's people kind of, you know, they had decent health, but they, that might not be, they might not be like living a fulfilled, like optimal, um, life you know they might just be kind of settling for subpar health and it seems like just with people kind of taking more control of their own health and like the biohacking kind of movement that's going on today it seems like people are, are really you know pushing more towards that like health span rather than lifespan yeah i think so i would say over the last five years probably there's been more interest than ever in taking a role in somebody's health and the kind of the two ways I look at it, sometimes I'll describe um, just the environment that we live in is kind of, you know, this is the algorithm that somebody's plugged into. 
And if you just kind of coast through how, you know, in, in Western society, the algorithm is set up, you know, you're going to work a sedentary job and you're going to have access to lots of, you know, processed foods that are very calorically dense. So when people are kind of coasting through that algorithm, you know, that's what's going to, you know, kind of lead to that chronic disease and a decrease in health span down the line. Uh, really interesting Harvard paper several years back. I was just looking at, you know, five things that predict you'll live about 10 years longer on average. I don't think it was quite as long for men, maybe eight years, something like that. Um, but it was, you know, diet and exercise, number one and two, you know, healthy body weight, which kind of goes right along with that. And then, you know, avoiding alcohol and then avoiding tobacco smoke or cigarette smoking. So, you know, there was a lot of public health initiatives that I think have done a lot of good getting people away from, um, you know, tobacco um, and cigarette smoking. Um, you know, nicotine is kind of debated because pure nicotine, you know, unless you have a, a reason to not have vasoconstriction, may it may convey some neuroprotective properties. It's kind of a gray area at this point in time, in my opinion. Um, but it's definitely preferable to have someone using you know, nicotine over cigarette smoking. But it's just those simple things that are going to greatly extend somebody's lifespan. Um, but then more people are interested in, well, I, I don't want to be, you know, 70, 80 years old and getting around with a cane. I want to still be able to travel and do the things that I want to do. And I think that there's so many good tools out there for people to, to use now. You know, we know that how, um, how fit and what your bone density is going to be, your peak in your 30s and 40s, is going to predict how long you can maintain those activities that you want to do throughout your life. Interesting. And the bone density we have in our 30s, I would assume, is, is probably very affected by our activity level, how much we're working out kind of our whole life up to then, maybe along with some genetic factors. Yeah, uh, the vitamin D receptor is one genetic factor. It, it basically correlates with what somebody's peak bone density is going to be regardless. Um, but then it, it's also you have these controllable variables, right? So Genetics right now are not controllable. You know, who knows where CRISPR will take us, but um, that's something that's exciting to watch. But as far as like, you know, resistance training, particularly people who are um, lifting heavy weights and, and sometimes even see this in the blood work. Um, if I have a, like a power lifter, for example, and I'm seeing their blood work, sometimes I'll see an isolated elevation of alkaline phosphatase. Uh, and this is an enzyme that the, uh, is produced by the osteoblasts that are building bone because you actually need a alkaline environment to do that. So in, in different populations, you see that elevated. And like if someone's having a fracture, you're going to see elevated alkaline phosphatase or if someone's really putting a lot of stress on the bones, you see that. So you can actually modify your peak bone density. I'm not sure what the percentage is there, but by doing resistance training, you know, before you're 30, you can get a higher peak. And then doing that after 30, after 40, you're going to be able to maintain and, and prevent that. Um, not entirely because we're all going to lose a little bit of bone. We're all going to lose a little bit of brain mass, but you want to lose as little as possible as you increase in age and the activities and the lifestyle is really going to dictate most of that. Right. And so touching on another thing that, that you mentioned there was, um, you know, alcohol. And it's, it's something that I was curious in terms of, is that, uh, you know, accounting for just like, you know, kind of like a drink or two a night? Is that like, because there, there's still, I feel like, you know, despite seemingly so much evidence to suggest that alcohol is definitely not a health food, it is not uh, contributing to our health in, in any way that I've heard of. It seems like there's still debate as far as like, you know, a glass of wine or two a night, potentially some people 
you know, think, you know, uh, stating that it confers some kind of health benefits. Um, do you buy that at all based on kind of the, the literature that you've seen? Yeah, with the Harvard study that I was mentioning, that was looking at like excessive alcohol use. So, mm-hmm. you know, probably if somebody is having, you know, a drink or two a week, that's probably not going to convey a lot of um, harm. But I don't think that it's beneficial. I think, um, and, and I know that some of the data that was funded by various, you know, alcohol companies, um, when they did this, they ex- included former alcoholics in their group that is not drinking any alcohol. So that was a confounder that kind of skewed the study results to where, oh, it looks like, you know, one to two is healthier than none at all. So, you know, that's a confounder there. And I think that if you look at just wide epidemiology, it's probably that people who are having a small number of alcoholic beverages are having more social connections, which we know are very important. So it's not the alcohol per se, it's the individuals that you're spending quality time with whether that's with or without the alcohol that I think would be the the net benefit there. So, you know, it's not something that I think people need to add, you know, seven or 14 drinks to their stack for, you know, health optimization, Um, probably, you know, zero or less alcohol is better than more. Got it. Yeah. That, that definitely parallels the the research that I've seen. How about in terms of with, with you seeing, what are the best that kind of like evidence-based interventions to, uh, to optimize brain health? Uh, so for brain health, there's a lot of interesting things. I mean, exercise is going to be number one um, because of the cerebral blood flow, um, antioxidant activity, all sorts of things that exercise, you know, activates cellular autophagy. I, I think that, you know, consistent exercise is going to do more for that than, you know, intermittent fasting, or then even if you're doing a couple of fasts per year, um, that's just kind of my bias towards exercise because, you know, there's just endless numbers of benefits there. Um, but there's a, there are some other things um, like with creatine, getting some attention here lately, um, supplementation and various aspects of you know, brain function, uh, like working memory. And, and I think when you see things like that stimulated where you have a, a improvement in system performance, that probably underlies with improving that underlying system and, and kind of brain optimization and maybe neuroprotection. Uh, the effect is more pronounced in older individuals. So uh, if somebody is 30 years old, it's, it's going to be a very small effect size from creatine. If somebody's 80 years old, or if somebody's on a like vegetarian diet, that effect size is probably going to be larger. Um, it's actually you know, rated as a significant effect when you look at that in the literature. Um, another thing that I uh, came across recently was uh, high flavonoid fruits and vegetables. So you know, not all fruits and veggies are created equal. You know, eating a banana is probably not going to be you know, very beneficial for your brain in terms of like getting those flavonoids, but um, like wild blueberries, spinach, onions, those sorts of things, um, they are associated with improvement in uh, both BDNF and cognitive performance. And the effect isn't like it happens in six weeks and you peak. Um, when you look at this data, it's like you get improvement up to 12 weeks and then even further improvement at 18 weeks, which was kind of the, um, the limit of the study there. Uh, personally, I like to take a lot of walks, trying to get a lot of steps in during the day. Um, this goes back to my uh, nursing school days, actually, because I saw a image of, um, I think it was in like undergrad students, probably. And they were looking at the brain activity. If someone is just sitting 20 minutes before they go and take a test, 
And then the brain activity of someone who, you know, takes a 20 minute walk before they go take a test. And you just saw so many more regions, you know, lighting up, you know, lots of more brain activity. So to me, I was like, you know, I want my brain to be, you know, more optimized when I'm taking that test versus I was just like sitting there trying to go over flashcards for 15 more minutes before the test starts. Absolutely. Yeah, something I really, really noticed in terms of my test performance and just my overall school performance was fasting. I got into playing around with like intermittent fasting during college. And I would notice like if I just refrained from eating the meal, eating a meal and just went into that test in a fasted state, I felt like I, my performance was definitely optimized, uh, especially versus if I had like a really carb heavy meal you know, 30 minutes, an hour before the test, um, which you know, I think just was to me, like really, really eye-opening and against a lot of, you know, what I'd previously heard about, oh, you know, you want to like always eat breakfast. And so I, I was just curious, what if, uh, is that something that you feel like, because I feel like fasting is still somewhat, somewhat controversial in some circles, but what's your, what's your take on fasting? Yeah, I, I think it's a tool just like anything else. So I've heard exactly what you're describing where people either do like, uh, you know, fasting or um, they move their eating window much later in the day because they really like that early morning you know, productivity because they've got their morning cortisol spike and they don't have, you know, carbohydrates or insulin, things like that, that are um, shunting them towards more you know, glucose metabolism, you know, depending on how low carb they are, they might have a bit of you know, ketosis in the morning or um, they might be on a ketogenic diet and, and some people will, you know, absolutely rave about the mental clarity or the improvement in mental health that they get from something like that. Uh, and I, I've seen, you know, Chris Palmer, um, the psychiatrist bringing this more to the forefront now. Um, and it's really interesting, you know, just kind of bringing the mitochondrial um, dysfunction to the surface again. Um, so hopefully that gets investigated as a result of some of the work he's doing. But, you know, I've seen you know, a lot of good things with uh, fasting and intermittent fasting. Um, if I'm looking at someone who, you know, doesn't have any you know, GI problems where they might need to have more bowel rest per day, like somebody who's like getting bloated, you know, constipated, um, they just have like overloaded their gut. Maybe they needed to have like an eight or 10 hour eating window, give their gut more time to rest, you know, use some glutamine to repair tight junctions and things like that. Um, then for those people that don't have any symptomatology, um, if you like intermittent fasting, you know, go ahead and do it. If you don't, then I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, having a, you know, early breakfast, um, as long as you're functioning well when you're doing that. So it really goes down to you know, individualizing, you know, the diet. Um, and, and a lot of people do just fine with, you know, three or four square meals per day, you know, getting their protein in, you know, not eating processed foods, you know, that's probably the biggest single thing um, that's going to be the hardest just because of the availability in the environment. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and I'm glad you brought up gut health because that's, you know, when, when it comes to brain health, the, the gut brain connection is something that has really come to light. I feel like in the past like five, 10 years, we're, we're learning so much and so much about how different, uh, you know, different balances of, of bacteria are actually impacting our mental health. So I'm curious for kind of repairing the gut, healing the gut, what are, what are some of the most important things, uh, steps that a person can take? Yeah, so basically looking at um, like a food diary can be very helpful, um, especially if someone, they can either do this and try and figure it out on their own or, you know, have a food diary. It's like, okay, this is what I ate. These are the days that I had symptoms. Um, and then, you know, even comprehensive blood work, because if somebody has a, like a 
it, you can start a cascade. If somebody has an underactive thyroid, hypothyroidism is very common, especially in women. You know, it's probably a 15% lifetime incidence, um, you know, five, 10 years ago, and it's probably gone up at this point as, you know, uh, more endocrine disruptors and just people in poor metabolic health are in the environment now, but maybe from 15 to 20%. But if somebody has an underactive thyroid, they're going to have dysregulated you know, bowel motility. It's not going to be emptying as quickly. And if the food is sitting there, that can predispose some of these bacteria to, you're supposed to be in the colon to back up into the uh, small intestine. You can actually end up with SIBO. So you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is what that uh, abbreviation is for the listeners. And, you know, when you have that, if you're like, oh, okay, you have SIBO. So here's, um, you know, some Zyfaxin, right? It's an antibiotic they use to treat this. Um, and there are actually some herbal preparations you can use with similar efficacy. But if you're just treating SIBO over and over again, it's like, why does this keep happening? Well, there's probably something else that's causing that. And in this case, it would be, you know, the thyroid condition because you've got, you know, a sluggish bowel, food isn't moving through properly. So, you know, that's just one example. Um, I, I think that, Ultra processed foods have a terrible effect on the stomach. Um, I think that ibuprofen is you know, very common. People are taking this because they are inflamed and it will make you feel better. Like, you know, if you've got a headache, oh, I'm gonna take an ibuprofen or three ibuprofens. Um, or if somebody's got aches and pains, arthritis, uh, but it's gonna thin the stomach lighting, um, set you up for you know, developing an ulcer, some of the other harmful things that it can do. So avoiding things that are gonna directly harm the GI tract and then doing things that are going to nourish the GI tract over time. So uh, one of those things is actually, you know, exercise. I was kind of surprised to see the effect that exercise had even on the diversity of the microbiome. So you have more different types of bacteria that get induced when people are doing regular aerobic exercise. It happens pretty quickly, about six to eight weeks. Um, and then and when people are looking at fiber intake, um, if I take like 70 or 80% of the population, uh, I won't tell them, you know, go start eating 40 grams of fiber because most people are eating like 10. And if they go from 10 to 40, then they're going to have bloating because those bacteria are not used to breaking down fiber. So it has to be titrated up slowly. That's why people are like, oh yeah, I tried eating you know, fruits and vegetables and you know, it just wasn't for me. Um, you know, it caused a lot of bloating, a lot of issues. So then they go back to what they were eating previously. So those are a couple of examples. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that is super interesting. I actually didn't know about that research in terms of, uh, in terms of the, the gut microbiome and how that changes with exercise, but that's, that's super interesting. Um, in terms of like alternatives to ibuprofen uh, for someone dealing with pain, what might be some, you know, more natural anti-inflammatories that don't disrupt the gut? Yeah. So I've actually had a number of people that seem to rave about omega-3s, uh, specifically the EPA having anti-inflammatory properties. Uh, and I'm not necessarily anti-inset. you know, inset. If you're taking ibuprofen you know, once, twice a month, uh, that, that's a little bit different than chronic use, where a lot of people will, will develop you know, chronic kidney disease if they're chronically using these things. Um, but there's topical formulations of NSAIDs as well. Um, generic Voltaren, which is called Diclofenac now, um, you can use, you know, they've studied this where you can use a gram a day um, for like four times a day, and you have a blood level that's going to be 17 times lower than if you were taking that orally. So it can be a good option for people who do have some arthritis um, that need an anti-inflammatory like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, 
if you eliminate, um, there's been some trials with lower carbohydrate diets um, that lower insulin in people who have metabolic syndrome uh, and like specifically with the knee osteoarthritis, knee pain and knee function outcome where they see like interleukin six comes down, um, knee pain is better, the mobility is better. You know, those are some really interesting things that I think are more on the, you know, the foundational, like you can do this from a lifestyle standpoint and, you know, that way you're not reliant on, you know, ibuprofen or even some of the more selective NSAIDs, those still tend to cause some kidney issues over time. Awesome. What about, uh, you know, cannabinoids, THC, CBD? I know a lot of people use those to, to manage both kind of acute along with chronic pain. What's your perspective on those kind of based on the research you've seen? Yeah, I've seen papers come out on both sides. I think earlier this week, even I saw one where like cannabis use was associated with a reduced number of opiate prescriptions. So like these people in this database that self-reported using cannabis were less likely to be prescribed opiates. And, you know, there's some confounders there. I don't know whether that's because, you know, providers are like, oh, you know, this person is using, you know, cannabis. I, I don't want to prescribe them oxycodone because I don't know how they interact. Or if these people are really having, um, you know, better uh, pain control as a result of that. You know, I think there have been some really good papers, um, you know, for people with, um, you know, anxiety, you know, sleep issues using the CBD specifically, um, that it is, it is effective and it, they report improved uh, function, uh, reduction in pain, you know, all those sorts of metrics that we look at as clinical endpoints. Um, so I think there's some promise there. As far as the biggest issue, it, it may come down to what is um, reliable, you know, just like with supplements, if the you know, let's say the, the vitamin D you're taking doesn't have that much vitamin D in it, you're not going to get the milligram per milligram effectiveness you need or in vitamin D, in this case, a microgram effect. Um, same thing with CBD, there's probably some, you know, quality control things there. And you know, it's not something that I am intricately familiar with. So if somebody wants to, you know, try something like that, probably the, the themes I would stick to would be, you know, what's a company that's well-established, been around for a long time, did some sort of third-party testing, um, just like with supplement brands, how you would sort of vet those. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. I've definitely seen some stuff out in terms of like, uh, I think CBD products that, you know, they did some like third-party um, external testing and they didn't have, uh, you know, nearly the amount uh, milligrams of CBD that they're claiming to have in these in these products. And I was like seen in, in a lot of different products across the marketplace. So yeah, I think I definitely echo what you're saying about finding finding a good quality brand that is accurately representing the the product that they're selling. I'm curious, like when it comes to to supplementation, you know, it seems like it, it's some sometimes something that's pretty polarizing in terms of some some people are in the camp of like you know let me let me take every single supplement they're they're taking a hundred pills of every single different thing and then there's uh, on, the, on the other side. There's people that are like, no, you know, supplements don't do anything. I can get everything I need from, you know, eating a healthy diet. So I'm curious where, where you, uh, where you fall sort of in that spectrum on supplement, uh, supplementation. Yeah. I've certainly seen those lists from patients like you're talking about where somebody's got, you know, 40 different supplements. And, you know, my question is when somebody gets a list that large, if they can go through and see okay, you know, what did you start taking this for and what specific benefit did you notice or what change did you see in your blood work? And a lot of times people are like, well, I just kind of, 
you know, heard about it and started taking it. And then like, we're basically going through the list and talking about, okay, well, what can this possibly help with? You know, is this really necessary? I mean, if you're taking 15 different antioxidants, like, you know, astaxanthin, N-acetylcysteine, vitamin C, turmeric, you know, probably some of that is going to be redundant. Um, and they're all, you know, good things in isolation. You know, they have anti-inflammatory, antioxidant effects. But at a, at a certain point, um, it, it can be a really high pill burden and you know, people can get a little bit you know, obsessive about that sort of thing. So you know, basically it's looking at targeted supplementation. So you know, I think for the vast majority of people, um, you know, if they have exercise goals and want to promote lean body mass, you know, creatine uh, you know, is a no-brainer. It's very cheap. Get the monohydrate powder, you know, use it five grams once a day, five days a week, something like that. Um, I don't think that everybody necessarily needs a multivitamin or like a, you know, a greens product. Um, cause if somebody's eating, you know, a pound or two of like fruits and vegetables per day, they're probably hitting most of their micros, um, as far as like B vitamins, uh, trace minerals, you know, magnesium, especially if they have leafy greens. Yeah, but some people, if, if you actually go into an app like chronometer or, you know, some of these other ones that actually show you micronutrient breakdown, you can see like, oh, well, I'm just, you know, I'm not hitting my magnesium, uh, but I'm just not going to like, some people are very set in their diet. They're like, this is what I eat every day. This is my routine. I don't want to try and rebuild that whole thing, just hit magnesium. So they'll add some magnesium with meals or take some magnesium before bed. I think that makes sense. Um, you know, personally, I take a, a half dose of a multivitamin and I think I have a pretty solid diet. So that's kind of my way to, you know, hedge. It's like, well, you know, a little bit of extra B vitamin is just, it's going to be water soluble. You know, it's not going to do any kind of you know, harm. But if I see you know, people taking high doses of, you know, vitamin E or, you know, vitamin Ks, uh, uh, the vitamin D, you know, we can measure that pretty easily, but you want to measure the other ones too, uh, make sure that they're not getting into like a, a vitamin A toxicity, because uh, those are fat soluble vitamins, the A, D, E, and K, um, and you can actually get too high of a level of those things. Uh, they build up, especially if somebody's maybe um, eating a lot of liver, for example. So you know, that's kind of how I think about supplements. There's you know a million of them, um, probably about, you know, I'd say 20 to 30 is kind of the, I guess the catalog, if you will, of things where I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm frequently like using this for select populations, like uh, for someone with uh, PCOS, which is you know, polycystic ovarian syndrome, something like myoinositol is, is very effective for decreasing those levels of excess androgens. So, so that's sort of something that I will frequently recommend for people um, that could be used, you know, perhaps in place of something like a, you know, metformin, if they're having GI issues with that, or just want something that's a little more natural. Uh, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with using a metformin for PCOS, um, but there's always, you know, alternatives you can find things in the supplement realm, things in the uh, medical realm, and things in the lifestyle realm as well. So kind of bringing the best of all three together. Yeah, no, I, I definitely appreciate that approach, and, you know, in terms of whatever, whatever works and has the, the best safety profile. It, I mean, that seems like what I would want to go with. And, and it's interesting, you know, you, I, I mentioned in your bio, how, you know, your, your kind of integrative approach where you're, you're combi combining different lifestyle interventions along with supplementation and medications when indicated. And I'm curious, like, what, what is your approach when it comes to, uh, you know, or do you always like try to start people with more natural means and then move on to medications if that isn't sufficient? And then also kind of, you know, what, what is your take in terms of like, we hear 
I guess some people just talking about, you know, you know, medications just always being bad, but at the same time, you know, definitely in like the work that I do in the mental health field, you know, you, you say whatever you want about some of these different medications, but I've, I've had countless patients tell me about how, you know, an SSRI has really like saved their life or, you know, been, been very effective. So I just am curious to hear your, your perspective on all that. Yeah, I think that um, medications like SSRIs um, are very important. I mean, they've saved countless lives at this point. So, you know, like if I have someone that comes to me with, you know, a little bit of, you know, seasonal affective disorder, they get kind of winter blues, um, then I don't think they need a, you know, max dose SSRI right off the bat. Um, maybe they would do well with some, you know, saffron, um, omega-3, specifically EPA, um, you know, making sure that they're you know, using a light box or, you know, getting outside in the morning it can be hard to do in the winter. So there's always alternatives there. Um, but some of those, you know, more natural things as opposed to like, oh, you need a medication for this. Um, and there's kind of this perception out there that, you know, all supplements are safe um, and then all medications are dangerous. And, you know, basically they're, they're the same purpose. You have you know, a symptom or something you're trying to improve with either medication or a supplement, and you just have much more data on the you know, medication side typically, but that doesn't mean that supplements are ineffective because a lot of the, I guess, supplement critics will try to point to, oh, well, you don't have a, you know, a trial with, you know, 15,000 people and it's just never going to happen in the supplement realm. So, you know, I think that SSRIs certainly have their place. If I have someone with, you know, profound depression and I tell them, you know, hey, just, you know, go read a book about being positive and take some fish oil and some saffron and, you know, come back and see me. You know, I think that's a disservice probably. And we need to talk about what, you know, some more potent options are. So that could be, you know, an SSRI and always take the patient uh, preference into account because if you collaborate with a patient and put together a plan, um, I'm sure just like you collaborate with someone on their, you know, cognitive goals, then, you know, you're going to have a much better outcome. So if somebody is very like, you know, hey, like I used this in the past or my sister took this and really helped her and I'm in a really rough place right now, then yeah, maybe, you know, low dose of uh, an escitalopram or something like that. Um, you know, starting low, increasing as needed can be a really good catalyst to kind of get somebody going and then take a step back and say, now, what about your environment? Do we need to change so that, you know, this doesn't recur? Because I think that's where, you know, SSRIs would really shine, like a, you know, six to 12 month treatment course where people can, you know, feel a little bit better, um, have the energy to do the things they need to do, where every day doesn't feel like a massive chore and things take more energy than they should. And then step back and while you're healing, which isn't always going to be linear, but while you're healing to then like build out your environment or kind of plug into the algorithm that, you know, is going to lead to, you know, happiness and, you know, the res uh, resolution of the depression in the long term. So I think that what happens a lot of times is in traditional medicine, they really are trying to do the most good for the most amount of people in the smallest amount of time. And a lot of times, if you've got 15 minutes with a patient, then, you know, you come in feeling kind of blue and well, here, you know, take an antidepressant, you'll feel better um, because you don't necessarily in the traditional model have time to dissect somebody's diet and exercise routine and what stressors they have and if they had any trauma in their past and all these sorts of things. So you know, I think there is a, a time and a place for them. And, you know, some people I've, I've talked to, they do better on SSRIs. They're like, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, take this because you know, my mood is always better, or I have less, you know, obsessive tendencies or, or whatever it may be. You know, they say, I'm just less irritable. You know, I'm, I'm nicer to people when I take this. So, you know, for, I think that if it allows them to live a better quality life, 
then I'm all for it. Yeah, no, I, I really can appreciate that approach too. What, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting just you being a, a nurse practitioner and, and someone obviously who's also very plugged into all of these different like holistic modalities, incorporating all of this stuff together. What, what sort of drew you into that versus maybe more traditional Western medicine, you know, a role of the, a nurse practitioner where you're, you know, maybe just prescribing medications. I mean, I'm not as far as uh, not positive in terms of the exact details of, of what that entails, but I could imagine that, that the majority of, of nurse practitioners at this point aren't, um, aren't like into this like integrative medicine that you are. Is that an accurate remark or? Yeah, I would say so. Um, as far as, you know, if you go through the, you go through the same, you know, allopathic training. So you manage, you know, kind of the, the holy trinity of primary care, which, you know, I'm a, a family care nurse practitioner is my credential, which is, you know, high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol. You know, those are really the Western characteristics and, and you know, disease states that you're treating. And those are you know, treated with you know, medication and, and lifestyle is always added in there. I mean, it's not that you know, people never talk about that at all in a traditional office visit. It's just usually you know, a sound bite. So you know, the move more, eat less, like, yeah, people you know, did that and that was helpful advice. Then you know, it's not incorrect advice. It's just not particularly specific or actionable for people. I, I think that's the problem. Um, but, you know, a couple of key moments when I look back to my uh, training when I was with, um, you know, internal medicine and, and family medical doctors, physicians, and uh, doing my clinical rotations, you know, there was a couple of things where I was like, you know, this, this doesn't make a lot of sense to me, or, you know, I guess this is just the way things are in the traditional model. Um, you know, the patient on uh, metformin and then a, a proton pump inhibitor. And I was like, oh, like we should probably check for a, a B vitamin deficiency. Um, and they're like, well, do they have any symptoms of a B vitamin deficiency? And I was like, well, no. And they're like, well, then you don't check for it. So and I don't think every physician out there is practicing like that, but I definitely saw a couple of pieces of, um, I guess, a couple of patient cases like that, where it's like, you know, this isn't the exact way that I want to practice medicine. Um, so, you know, finding something that was a little bit outside of the traditional model, just a really good fit for me, um, being able to spend more time with patients and then um, really collaborate with them more so than be like, you know, here, do this for this because I'm the provider. Yeah. And I mean, just, you know, I think the, what you mentioned there, the, those big three, you know, issues in the Western world, you, you mentioned obesity, type two diabetes and, and high blood pressure, right? So, I mean, those we know are so you know, there's such a big influence of diet and exercise, just lifestyle interventions. It's, it seems kind of crazy uh, to be treating those different conditions purely through, you know, pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And you can look at it a couple of different ways. Um, the way that makes me feel a little bit better about it is thinking of it like, you know, harm reduction. So if I have someone who is, you know, let's say they're, they're using heroin, um, then harm reduction for that is like, hey, you should probably have some Narcan on hand or people that are around you have Narcan on hand in case you overdose. So if you have somebody who is obese and, you know, they've been counseled, you know, maybe not the best counseling, but they've been told, you know, what to do for, you know, weight loss and to get healthier and they're not doing that. Well, then we certainly don't want them to have, you know, high blood pressure and high cholesterol and diabetes and then, you know, have an amputation and kidney failure early. So the medications are sort of a harm reduction 
that's secondary to the basically the damage that's caused by lifestyle. And it's a really unique space that we're in because if you look probably 40 years ago, I think is when you know, the weight gain and overweight and obesity really kind of took off. And you know, it's people will say that, you know, it's not really well understood. I mean, it on the surface level, it's very simple. You know, people started eating more calories and had more um, sedentary lifestyles, you know, office jobs, driving cars, not bicycling, walking, um, not working on farms, that sort of thing. But then if you look at, well, why is that? So like, why are people consuming more calories than they need to, to sustain their nourishment? That's where it gets to be really, you know, complex. And there are complex interactions between, you know, hypothalamic hunger signaling and the, you know, food, fast food environment that we have now. I mean, if you go to you know, somewhere in you know, Africa, for example, and you put up, you know, a fast food restaurant on every corner and give people a $60,000 a year salary, you'll see the same things happen because it's the same environment. So I don't know if that's a conversation that the public is ready to have yet, as far as like a public health initiative where, you know, hey, these snack foods like Doritos and Twinkies, like these need to become non-nutritive where they actually don't have calories in them so that people are not gaining excess weight. But that's probably the way that things will get reversed. Um, just my speculation, because I don't think it's feasible to put, you know, like 200 million Americans on weight loss medication to correct an environmental issue. You know, that may be the, the best harm reduction solution in the meantime, but I think long-term it's going to have to go towards, you know, health policy and then uh, basically, you know, people, um, I think it will start with the family as well. So if you have a pattern of like, you know, raising healthful behaviors yourself and raising your children in a healthful way, then I think that'll have positive effects that ripple out too. Cause I don't want it to make it, I don't want it to sound like um, that people are powerless, that they have, you know, no ability to control over this. Cause we all make decisions every day and sometimes we don't make the best decisions and, and that's okay. It's important to just get up, try again and, and keep trying and not give up. Yes, I definitely echo that. Well, James, do you, uh, did, or is there anything missing uh, from this whole picture of, you know, health that we have not yet touched on that you think is really important for, for listeners to, to understand? Yeah, I, I will say that people should still establish with a, you know, good primary care provider. Um, the healthcare system is very effective at detecting things that are going to cause you harm and then trying to mitigate those things. And it may take a while, but you know, finding a provider that really you know, resonates with you and can be a partner in building your health out together, I think is very important, whether that's a you know, physician assistant, nurse practitioner, or whether that's a, a physician, um, you know, having a, a partner in the traditional medical, medical model. Um, and then there's a lot of you know, um, like personal trainers, you know, health coaches, uh, people like yourself who are doing work in cognitive optimization. You know, there's all these other sorts of you know, subspecialists out there. You know, a nutritionist can tell somebody way more about you know, altering their diet to get to a certain goal than I can, um, just because that's not where my education is hyper-specialized. Just like you can tell me you know, way more about you know, brain waves than you know, I would ever learn in any kind of um, traditional training. So you know, finding the specific specialty that you need to work with to get to your goal I think is really what's high yield for people. And then I do think regular blood work is important. Um, that way, you know, establishing a baseline and then, you know, checking for some of these other things that are not um, commonly tested for um, with your primary, um, like if you're looking at screening for pre-pre-diabetes, uh, fasting insulin is a cheap test. It's a good way to do that. Uh, that way you're not catching just the glucose rise when you've been, 
you know, kind of pre pre diabetic for five years, but you kind of get the the canary in the coal mine, um, you know, before you actually start to see these things manifest. And you know, you know sooner is always better than later. Uh, that the old quote goes, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and I, I think that really holds true. Yes, definitely. Well, awesome, James. I really enjoyed having this discussion with you. And, um, you know, for, for listeners who also enjoyed it, where can they connect with you, find out more about your work? Uh, where can they head to? Yeah, so I try to put out um, information on my Instagram page, which is at James O'Hara NP, um, just little health tidbits and scientific things that I find interesting. Uh, I also co-host the Gillette Health Podcast. You can find that on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. And then my clinic that I co-founded is located in Kansas City. Uh, we also do telemedicine, and that is GilletteHealth.com will be the website for anyone who wants to find out more information about that. Awesome. We'll definitely include links to all those in the show notes. And James, yeah, I, I you know, just really, really respect what you're doing and just the evidence-based approach, you know, not you know, not negating one modality and in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, just supplementation, or just medication and really just taking a holistic approach in terms of what, what does the evidence say, what, you know, what's going to work best. So really, uh, really appreciate the work you're doing. And thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, to come on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for the kind words. And thanks again for having me. Without a doubt. So listeners, uh, if you guys were listening to the episode, you can head over to our YouTube channel. If you want to see the full episode, the YouTube channel is Neuroflex. If you're watching the video, you can head on over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or most other major audio streaming platforms to take a look at the audio podcasts. James, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.